I'm going to read Matthew chapter 4. We're going to go through the entire chapter, Matthew chapter 4 today. Hopefully by the time we leave here, you guys are going to know Matthew chapter 4, forwards, backwards, inside now. That's going to be, that's the plan. But we've got a lot of ground to cover. So I'm going to read Matthew chapter 4, and then we will pray and we'll, we'll go from there. It says this, Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you and... On, the, on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He said to him, All these I will give to you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that it was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and, and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I pray that you would come now and, and, and help us to see um, Jesus from this chapter. It's a lot to take in. Um, I pray that you would just use me to convey this message. Father, help me to speak slowly, to speak clearly. Give me clarity of thought. Um, give the people listening clarity of thought. Open our eyes to see Jesus. Open our hearts to receive Jesus. Open our minds to comprehend Jesus this morning. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 4 is huge. Um, as I studied and prayed and read through this chapter this week, seeking God as to what He would have me to say, I quickly realized that this chapter is well worth 
a month's worth of sermons at least. Um, there are several what I would call sideline issues or topics in this chapter that could be expounded on in much more detail than what I'm going to do. Um, as we work through this chapter, we're going to stop. We'll address these little topics shortly, but I'm not going to spend a ton of detail on a lot of the things that most people, that you can pull out of this chapter. Um, if you'll remember, Matthew's, or our purpose in going through Matthew's gospel is to see Jesus, to, to understand who the person Jesus was, the things that he taught, um, why he taught the things he did. Um, and so... I want us to leave every week with a new perspective on who Jesus was, a new new understanding of Jesus. I want us to become intimately acquainted with Jesus and the things he said and the things he taught and his purpose on earth. And so that's that's what we're we're going to we're, we're not going to focus on a lot of these sideline issues. The main theme today, and you can write this down if you're taking notes and and where I'm going to focus this morning is this. Jesus is the embodiment of the true Israel. Jesus is the embodiment of the true Israel, or Jesus is the true and greater Israel. Jesus is the true and greater Israel. As we go through this chapter, we'll, we'll see some language that we kind of got into last week from Isaiah, but um, we're going to kind of go a step further with it. So I want to dig into this chapter um, for added effect. I'm going to, since we've already read it through, I'm going to start from the end and work backwards, kind of build a, a, a picture in our heads, and then I'm going to go back through it again, forwards, real quickly. So we're going to know this chapter, forwards, backwards, inside and out. We're going to see what's going on here. Um, as we begin this chapter, we pick up right where we left off last week. Jesus is baptized. He comes up out of the water. Jesus, or the Father, the, the heavens open. And God says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. The Spirit comes and rests on Jesus like a dove. And then immediately picks up after that. That baptism scene that we saw last week was the inauguration of Jesus' ministry. He's about 30 years old at this point. He's just been living as a carpenter in, uh, in, in Nazareth and just kind of going about his business like a normal man other than being the sinless Son of God. Um, so that's where we pick up. And this baptism is kind of God's stamp of approval. This is my Son. Now go and begin your ministry. And then look at verses 23 and 25. Or 23 through 25. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease, every affliction among the people, so that his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, from Jerusalem, Judea, from beyond the Jordan. This is, by the end of chapter 4, Jesus' ministry is in full effect. This is his ministry. He's, he's, he, he, in verse 17, he begins to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Same thing John was preaching. And then by the end of the chapter, he's healing all these diseases, sicknesses, demon oppression. So we've got to ask ourselves, this is Jesus' ministry in full effect. What is he doing? What is, in, in Jesus' ministry, what does it consist of? He's preaching repentance in, the light of the coming, in light of the coming kingdom, just like John. That is, turn away from sin... Worship the living God. He's also healing sicknesses, diseases, casting out demons. 
He's telling people to turn away from sin while at the same time overthrowing the effects of sin. Because of sin, we have sickness, we have disease, we have demons, all that. Those are all effects of sin as a whole. So he's overthrowing that. He's challenging people to repent and at the same time breaking the chains of demonic possession in people's lives. So this is, this in this first glimpse into Jesus' ministry, he's battling all that stands to oppose the rule and the reign of Yahweh on earth. The kingdom is coming and Jesus, in his ministry, he's conquering the rule of sin in people's bodies, in their minds, in their spirits throughout the region. This is Jesus' ministry. This along with preaching repentance is his ministry. So... That's where the the chapter ends. His ministry is in full effect. Now look at verse 18 through 22. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So at the very outset of his ministry, at the very beginning, as he's just getting the ball rolling, he's kick-starting his ministry, what does he do? He calls some disciples. Jesus begins to collect a group of people, fishermen, who would be the force through which much of his ministry would take place. These men would also be the ones who carried out this ministry after Jesus was gone. Now, we've talked before, there's, there's no doubt in my mind, I hope not in yours, that Jesus could have come and done everything that his ministry encompassed in one swoop. Snap of his fingers, the word of his mouth that could have been done all by himself, exerting no force, just conquered sin and death and been done with it. But that's not what he did. He chose a people through whom he would work on earth and by whom he would continue to spread the gospel of the kingdom after he was gone. And then his ministry kicks off. So back up a little bit more, 12 through 16. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then he gives the prophecy that Isaiah spoke. So this is, this is not a huge point in the chapter. It doesn't have a lot of... Wait in what's going on, except for we see once again Matthew is, is reminding his Jewish readers, you guys have been reading Isaiah for thousands of years. This is him. This is Jesus. So he's reminding them. He, he wants to make sure that the Jewish readers don't get caught up in what's going on. This is, this is the man. This is the Messiah. So, so back up now to verses 3 through 11. This is the main force of this chapter. This is the, the biggest scene we see. Um, if, if, if somebody mentioned, you know, hey, remember that part in Jesus' ministry where he fulfilled Isaiah 9? Well, you're probably going to say, I don't think so. It's not come to memory. But if I said, you ever heard the story of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness? Well, of course. I've, everybody knows that story. This is usually the main, uh, the, the brunt of this chapter. So... This is a detailed description of a conversation, an interchange between Satan himself and Jesus in the wilderness. Now, I'm not going to go into detail just yet, but just notice the chronology of events. And we'll go back into it in detail in, in, in just a minute. Just before this interchange, this temptation, verse 2, he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. 
He was hungry is what it says. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Go figure. No food for 40 days. He's hungry. Okay, and then verse 1. He's led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. This is the how and the why of this whole scene. He's The Holy Spirit of God leads Jesus into the wilderness for the very purpose of meeting head on with Satan. For temptation. This is why he went. It's the reason he was there. So now, play back in regular mode. Jesus is led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness for a period where he was to be tempted. Now, if you remember back in our study in James, we learned that God himself cannot be tempted with evil and and neither does he tempt no one. And we also learned that the New Testament, the words for tempt and test are, are interchangeable, the same thing. So from God's perspective, Jesus will be tested to prove himself. From Satan's perspective, it's going to be a temptation. Satan's trying to get him to sin. And so Jesus is in the wilderness for a period of 40 days so that he can be tested. Directly previous to the testing, he goes without food. Now, when I read this, I thought, well, he doesn't eat for 40 days and 40 nights. And we usually think of that as like that was his wilderness experience. But it wasn't. He was led into the wilderness to be tested, to be tempted. But he didn't eat for 40 days and 40 nights. Then the temptation came. So my question is, well, couldn't he not be tempted and still eat? I'm tempted every day and I eat almost every day. So could, so what's the, what's the deal here? Why could Jesus not be tempted without fasting? We'll go into more detail in a minute exactly why, he, why I think he really fasted. But um, a shorter answer is he was preparing for spiritual warfare. He was getting ready for what was about to happen. This is one of those sideline issues that I was talking about. The first one is the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. There are going to be times, and we must be willing to accept that at times, God will act and decree and orchestrate events in such a way that to us looks like a very bad thing. It looks like evil. It looks terrible from our perspective. But we must understand that God has reasons that we don't understand sometimes. He tells us to do things that we don't get sometimes. Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted. That looks like a terrible thing. Why would God do that to His Son? But God had something bigger in mind. And so we must be willing to accept those things. Just like Job said, would I, shall we accept blessings from God and not curses? That's not fair. We've got to take from God everything He gives. And trust that He knows what's best. And so that's the first sideline issue. Second Sideline issue is back to the fasting issue. If Jesus Christ, the Son of God, 100% God, 100% man, had to prepare himself, mind, body, spirit for spiritual warfare, then you better believe that us, we as fallen creatures, must prepare ourselves daily for spiritual warfare. Because if you understand the Christian life and what Scripture teaches about how we are to live, every day for us, leaving our house, not even leaving our house, just waking up, every day is spiritual warfare. You are walking into battle against Satan and his demons every single day. See, we want to see friends, family members, co-workers come to know Jesus. We want to see our town radically transformed by Jesus. We want to see sick people made better. We want to see... Lives change. We want to see all these blessings. But we must understand that while we want those things, 
At the same time, Satan and his demons want the opposite. And they don't have to go to work. They don't have to sleep. Their job 24-7 is to battle that, those things. All the time they're battling. They're fighting the forces of God constantly. So when we walk into a lost world, we are walking into battle every day. The question is, how bad do you want to see the kingdom of God established on earth? How bad do you want to see lost people come to know Jesus? How bad do you want to see lives transformed? Do you want it more than you want food? Because that's what fasting is. I like food that tastes good on my tongue. And fasting says... I'm going to do without it, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to seek God and show God, God, I'm not letting you go until you answer this prayer, and I want it so bad, I want it more than food. I'll give up my food just to show you that this means more to me than my very life. So that's what we do when we fast. So the question is, how serious are you be, Are you about waging spiritual warfare? Because I can say I want tales to transform. I want to I want see lost people come to know Jesus. But do you want it bad enough that you'll stop eating and pray and say, I'm done. I'm letting up. So that's the second sideline issue. Not the main point of the chapter, I don't think, but that's something very important. So let's keep moving. So we're getting into the meat of the chapter. After 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, Satan shows up to tempt Jesus. This is why he's here. This is the purpose for him being here. God, by his spirit, has led him to test him and Satan is here to get him to sin. So the first exchange goes like this. Verse 3. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Satan, first of all, challenges the deity of Jesus. First thing he said, if you're the son of God. Just a month prior, God, the heavens had opened and God said, this is my beloved son. And then Satan comes along, well, if you are the son of God, if you are who God says you are, if you are who you think you are, I know you're hungry, just take one of these rocks and make a piece of bread. I know you're hungry. So he challenges Jesus' deity and he appeals to his earthly nature to do this. Make bread out of a stone. He knows he's hungry. Can you imagine not eating for 40 days? I can't. Cannot imagine it. That would be miserable. You can imagine the the physical shape that Jesus would have been in at this point. And Satan challenges his human nature because he's hungry. And look how Jesus responds. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He responds with a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Now, if you're like me, growing up, I would read this story, and I would think, huh, just, a, just happens to be a really good answer in the Old Testament for what Satan's doing here. And Jesus just said, oh yeah, man, don't live by bread alone. I don't need that bread, but that, I think there's more to it. We'll get to that at the end. Jesus responds with Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. The second exchange takes place. Satan takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple, the highest place, and he basically says, jump off. Because the Bible says, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. He quotes uh, Psalm 91 to Jesus. Satan uses scripture to tempt Jesus. This is the other sideline issue that I see. Namely, that Satan knows the Bible better than you do. For the most part. He knows scripture. He will use scripture against you. 
The only way to keep from getting tricked is to know your Bible better than he does. Or know it well enough to where you can hear something and say, hmm, just kind of sounds a little off. See, Christians are very, very bad for this. This is what we do. We'll find a verse, one verse, out of a chapter, out of a book, out of the Bible, and we will say, God has, God has given me this verse. I'm claiming this verse as a promise over my life. As He gave me this verse, I was reading, I just felt it, and I just, this verse, is just, I'm claiming this promise for my life. But the problem is, it's a horrible misuse of Scripture, and will leave you destitute and miserable and mad at God when, when His promises that He made to you don't come true. What, God, you gave me a promise. So if I think about this, remember, interpretation of Scripture lies within the original author's intent. Specific men wrote specific things to specific people for specific reasons. We look back and put it all together and we see Jesus. You can't just take one out and, and, and hold it up and say, God gave me a promise. Because if I can do that, here's, here's an example. I'm going to go to Joshua chapter 1. And it says that God told Joshua that everywhere your footsteps, this is your land. I've given it to you. Talking about the promised land. So I read that and I'm, I'm just doing my quiet time in the morning. I read that and I feel like God is just telling me, this is, this is your verse. This is the verse for your life. And so I claim this verse. Thank you, dear Lord, for giving me this verse. And I go outside and I get my car and I park it in my neighbor's yard. And I walk around and I say, this is mine. Thank you, Lord. Now, this sounds great. I took scripture and I claimed a promise for my life. And I'm going to be really upset when my neighbor comes outside and says, hey, man, get your car out of my yard. And I say, no, man, God gave me a promise. Now you're challenging God. You're going against God. So you're going to hell. God, you told me I could have this. Now what? The law gets involved. I get in trouble. God let me down. Or I'm just being persecuted for following the Lord. It's, it's foolish. You see what I'm saying? This is a terrible way of twisting God's word. And it's far too common in evangelical Christianity. People do this. Satan loves this type of Bible teaching. Jesus don't. Jesus is not cool with this. It's a terrible misuse. It's a, it's a bad handling of God's word. But Satan will use anything he can to get you just a little off track. Just barely. If you think about a train track and those little things that shift to make the train move, that's a little bitty thing compared to a train. That little bitty thing will move a whole train and take it off to another state. So we, Satan will do any little thing to get us off, of, off track. He doesn't want us to realize that this is all about Jesus. So we read from the beginning, there's a promise of Satan's head getting crushed. And we read at the end, Satan's head is going to get crushed. And Satan don't want us to know that. He don't want us to know we've already won. And so he'll get us off track. So that's sideline issue number three, not the main point. Um, and, he, and Jesus answers with another scripture, verse 7. Again, it is written. Jesus doesn't say, that's not in the Bible. He says, you're right, it does say that. But again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So Jesus uses this biblical reply. If you're like me, you read this and you think, man, that's so crazy how there's a Bible verse that just directly answers Satan. But that's not what's going on here. We'll get to that. He answers again from Deuteronomy. Um, I think it's chapter from chapter 8 at that time. Um, no, that was 6. Um, the third interchange. Verses 8 through 10, Satan takes Jesus to the top of a mountain. Again, the devil took him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to, them, said to him, 
All of these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So Jesus answers him again. He, he, Satan challenges Jesus' lordship here, offering something that Jesus knows he already owns every bit of it. As a matter of fact, he's holding it all together. He knows this. It was created through him. And Satan says, I'll give this stuff to you if you'll worship me. So he's trying to challenge the lordship of Christ here. And Jesus answers once again from Deuteronomy chapter 8. Once again, it just seems like a good biblical answer. You shall worship the Lord your God, him only shall you serve. Man, that's just so ironic that these answers, he just pulls from Scripture that... Like I said, I think there's more going on here. Then verse 11, the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now I picture, we know that angels are in our world all the time. Now, then, they've always, they're they're active. There's spiritual warfare going on in the realm that we can't see all the time. So I imagine these angels are, are there and they've probably been watching Jesus this whole time. Watching their king, watching their Lord fast for 40 days in the wilderness. His ribs are showing, his face is sunken in, he's cold, he's hungry, he's miserable. And Satan comes to tempt him and the whole time they just want to jump in and rescue their king. Because they can do it, start waging. You fight for your king. You protect your king. And maybe there's, they're gathering, they're watching. And you can see maybe all of heaven is watching this event. And there's maybe, maybe even God the Father or some of the boss angels are holding them back saying, Guys, we just got to wait. We, he's got to take this one. for He's got this. We just got to wait. If we step in, if we, if we come in now, we're going to mess up everything. So just hold back. And you know they want so bad to rescue, come and help their king. And it says, no, just, just wait. That's, that's what I picture. And then as soon as it's over, whoo, they swoop in and they're helping him. I don't know what they did. It says they ministered to him. I'm thinking probably gave him food, probably gave him water, maybe wrapped a blanket around him to keep him warm. Because this is their king. They just watched their king go without food for 40 days and 40 nights and combat with Satan head on. And so they come and they minister to him. And for me, this is just a great picture of all of the heavenly realm sitting around the portals of human history watching this meta-narrative of what Jesus is doing In the universe. The Bible says that when one person comes to repentance, the angels, there's basically a party in heaven. They cheer. They love it. It's like they're gathered around maybe a picture of Colosseum. But they're not watching a sporting event. They're not watching a UFC fight. They're watching Jesus and this story unfold and Jesus redeeming his people. And they cheer with myriads and myriads of angels cheering every time one person comes to Jesus. So that's just a cool picture for me. And so this is the fun part. In these three exchanges, something very important takes place that I think most people will overlook. Now, I hope that we understand that when it comes to the Word of God, there are no throwaway phrases. There are no verses that we can say, well, that's pretty cool, but I mean, he didn't have to say all that. There are none. Every word of every sentence of every page is God's Word spoken to His people. And the same goes for when Jesus talks. When Jesus talks, He talks the very words of God. They're not just quick jabs. They're not throwaway phrases. He is the literal incarnate Word of God and He speaks the very words of God. He is God. And so I think it's interesting that when you collect all the answers that Jesus gave Satan, they all come from one little section of Scripture in Deuteronomy, in the Old Testament. So keep your finger in Matthew. You don't have to keep your finger. Flip to Deuteronomy um, chapter 6. Let's try 6. That's kind of in the middle. We're going to be... 
like four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, but six is about the middle. Um, so Deuteronomy chapter six, and now we'll talk a little bit. The entire book of Deuteronomy takes place as the children of Israel are getting ready to go into the promised land. They have just been in the wilderness for 40 years because of their rebellion. And now they're about to go into battle with the peoples that are inhabiting the land of Canaan at this time. Before they go in, Moses reads them the law and reminds them of how God has kept them. God has watched over them. God has rescued them and carried them through the wilderness. Deuteronomy 9, 4 It says this, Do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, that's the nations that they're going to conquer. Don't say, the Lord, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas, it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. They are going in to claim the promised land that God promised them. They're going to conquer these nations. But behind that conquering and that promise is the need for these other nations that have rebelled against God to be judged, to be taken care of. They're rebellious. Wipe them out. So they are acting as agents to carry out God's judgment on those nations who oppose God's reign on earth. They are a people chosen to conquer that which stands to oppose the kingdom of Yahweh on earth. Sound familiar? We've already read in Matthew 4. This is almost exactly what Jesus is doing by the end of Matthew chapter 4. So we can kind of see where this is going. Now flip over to Deuteronomy 4. Back just a little bit. 5 through 8 says this. It's Moses is getting ready to start reading to him. And he's... In verse 5, he says, See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of. He's saying, I gave you the law that God gave me. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon Him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Moses is reminding the people that strict adherence to the law, the word of God that he's given them, is is important. It is a missional purpose. As the people of God directly obey the law, the other nations look at them and they're drawn to Yahweh. It's a missional purpose that they're acting. So they're going to act as God's light to the nations. So their obedience acts as a missional agent. So now, like we've already said, and most of you know, the children of Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness because of their rebellion. Flip over to Deuteronomy 8. Here's another one. Verses 1 and 2 of Deuteronomy 8. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way That the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might punish you? No. That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commands or not. So even though they were rebelled 
They were being punished by God. Their time in the wilderness was a time of testing to see if they would properly use God's commandments, God's word at this time. God had a bigger purpose behind them being in the wilderness than just popping them on the hand and saying, you shouldn't have rebelled. They were, he was testing them. He was, he was, and then this is where we get a clear picture of, of God's perspective versus our perspective. Oh, God's punishing us. And God's saying, I'm testing you to see if you will obey my word. So God's people in the wilderness for 40 years to be tested to see if they would use God's commands correctly. Sound familiar? We begin to see even more similarities between them and what Jesus did and why Jesus chose the scriptures he did from this section in Deuteronomy. From the very start of his ministry, Jesus goes straight into redeeming, fixing, correcting, and making right all that the children of Israel had failed to do from the beginning. He comes in, first thing, go in the wilderness, do what they didn't do, better than they did, and win. Use what they didn't use to win. Okay, so that's that. In Isaiah, like we talked last week, there are many mentions of Israel, or my servant Israel, or my servant that God uses to describe his people. I'm not going to take the time to read them all, but... um, Isaiah 41, 8 and 9 says, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its furthest corners, saying to you, You are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. So we see there, clearly the language is describing a people gathered from the ends of the earth, from all the four corners of the earth. Now, if you go over to Isaiah 53, which we read and we understand it's about Jesus, His crucifixion, about the suffering servant, and, and all of those things. In Isaiah 53, 11, it says this, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant... Make many to be accounted righteousness. He shall bear their iniquities. So once again, God's servant is bearing the iniquities of his people and giving a foreign righteousness to those who will ultimately put their faith in Jesus. Same term, servant. And it's clearly about Jesus. You put all that together and you see that in Scripture there is ethnic Israel, a bloodline, a people group inside the boundaries of the country Israel. Then there is spiritual Israel. Romans 11 talks about, and, and 9 through 11 talks about us being grafted into this spiritual Israel, the children of the promise. And then there is another servant, Israel, a person who is clearly Jesus Christ, who embodies all of what both groups fail to do or cannot complete on their own. Like I said, ethnic Israel failed miserably. And spiritual Israel, that's us, are only called Israel because we are, in Romans 11, it says, grafted into the vine. Who's the true vine? Jesus said, I am the true vine. And so, the true Israel, Jesus, He's he's the true Israel. We are spiritual Israel because we're united to Christ by faith, like we learned last week. And so we get all the benefits of Christ, being united to Christ by faith, we become spiritual Israel. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. Every promise from Scripture finds its yes in Jesus. Either in Jesus' coming in the past or His coming in the future, it stops with Jesus. Every promise of blessing that God ever made is yes in Jesus. Every promise of curse that God ever made is either yes in Jesus' death on the cross or in Jesus pouring out of His wrath on people in the last day. 
Jesus is that true Israel. So here are four points of application and we'll be done. Number one, Jesus is the true Israel who rests in God's sovereignty even in the face of perceived evil. Jesus is the true Israel who rests in God's sovereignty even in the face of perceived evil. See, the Old Testament ethnic Israel, they failed miserably. They wouldn't go into the promised land because they went and spied it out and there were giants there. Well, can't do it. They're going to beat us. Even though God had said over and over, I'm giving you this land. Go into the land. You're going to conquer the land. I've given you this land. It's a blessing. Take it. Just go. They spied it out. Mm, those people are too big. They rebelled. They wouldn't go in and God punished them. They, they failed. It looked like God was leading them into a bad situation. Even though God had already said, you've got this. I'm giving it to you. And they would not trust God. Jesus follows the leading of the Holy Spirit in all cases, even into the wilderness, to be tempted by Satan himself. Jesus did what they could not or did not do so that we don't have to do it. Number two, Jesus is the true Israel who always properly, who is always properly prepared for spiritual warfare. Jesus is the true Israel who is always properly prepared for spiritual warfare. Ethnic Israel in the Old Testament, we know they, they failed this miserably. In Numbers 11, as soon as they leave Mount Sinai, God gave them the Ten Commandments. As soon as they leave to begin walking, God it says a mighty wind blows and blows a bunch of quail up on the, on the shore. And, and they start immediately going and they start gathering it into piles and saving it to eat. And this makes God mad because their minds are constantly on self-gratification. It's just, God has just blessed them with the, the law has... Spoken has come visibly on this huge mountain, gives them some food, and, and they're just, it's like it's the furthest thing from their mind. Immediately to the food. We do this. We come to church, we hear the word of God, we're immediately, as soon as it's done, we're, we're on something else. And, this is, and it made God mad. Because they were constantly thinking about self-gratification and pleasure above God. And rather than honoring God above all else. Jesus... Comes And knowing what is about to take place in the temptation, not only does he not hoard up food, he doesn't pack a satchel or a, a travel bag. No, he goes without food for 40 days. He perfectly displays the right attitude that we must have daily as we live in a fallen world. God must be our supreme delight. God must be our sustenance. His word must fuel us. Because man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus did what they could not do so that we wouldn't have to. Number three. Jesus is the true Israel who rightly wields the weapons God has given to overcome Satan. Jesus is the true Israel who rightly wields the weapons God has given to overcome Satan. Old Testament Israel, ethnic Israel, fails miserably. Not only do they consistently disobey God's law, while God was giving Moses the law, they were at the bottom of the mountain making, a, making an idol, making a golden calf to worship. God had given them exactly what they needed to accomplish the mission. Obey the law. Here's the law. Obey it. The nations will be drawn. Yahweh's people will be formed and it'll be done. They couldn't do it. Could not obey God's law. They wouldn't do it. They were constantly... Complaining and rebelling. If they would have just obeyed, it would have been done. They rebelled and they were ultimately drug away into captivity. And it looks like it's over. It looks like God just said, eh, I'll try again some other time. 
Jesus shows up before he begins his ministry of conquering sin and death and disease. He's ultimately crucified on the cross to draw men unto himself. He goes into the wilderness to be tempted. At every challenge of Satan to tempt Jesus, his physical nature, his relation to the Father, his lordship, every one of these challenges, Jesus promptly responds without hesitation with the word of God that God gave to the children of Israel thousands of years before perfectly. He did not, they had failed to put it to use. Jesus wields this sword of the spirit, the double-edged word of God, perfectly and rightly battling Satan. He does not give in one bit. He just spews the word of God. He didn't take anything out of context to claim a promise for himself. He could have. He could have said, you're right, I am God. Bread, boom. He could have done that, but he didn't. He doesn't take stuff out of context to make it about himself. He's obedient by actually being placed in the same context in the wilderness, using the scripture exactly how it's supposed to be used to defeat sin and uphold the glory of God above all else. And then number four, Jesus is the true Israel who will faithfully complete the task that we cannot. Jesus is the true Israel who will faithfully complete the task that we cannot. See, I've already alluded that that ethnic Israel failed to do their job. They were supposed to be a light to the nations by obeying God's law. They didn't do it. They rebelled. They were assimilated into other nations and drawn away. And like I said, it looked like God had just kind of given up. And then after 400 years of silence, Jesus comes. He goes through his wilderness. He beats Satan with the word of God. Begins to gather a new covenant people. As we've seen in verses 23 and following. He goes about his mission faithfully overthrowing the kingdom of darkness. And faithfully calling, faithfully doing what the children of Israel couldn't do so that we wouldn't have to. After three years, he finalized all that he came to do when he went to the cross of Calvary. Jesus walked down that way of suffering. He carried his cross. He went and he died for the sins of his people. Despised, rejected by men, family, friends. He bore our griefs. He bore our sins. He carried our iniquities on his shoulders. He bled and he died in his flesh to pay for sin. So Jesus, on the cross, did what bulls and goats could not do for the ethnic children of Israel so that we would not have to. We don't have to die now because of our sin if we can be grafted into Jesus by faith. So because of that death, we can be united to Christ. We can be born again into that new covenant family. And if you are born again, you are now commissioned to go and carry on the mission, being a light to the nations, to draw people to God. The Holy Spirit empowers us to do what they did not do and what we cannot do without Him. We have to have that Holy Spirit power. Jesus is the true Israel obeying in all points where ethnic Israel failed and empowering in all points where spiritual Israel lacks. That's us. The Bible says His strength is made perfect in weakness. We just call on Him. And He empowers us to do this. Let's pray.